Hello and welcome to Democracy Works. I'm Jenna Spinelli. This week, I am excited to bring you a conversation with Serge Popovich and Sophia McLennan, both of whom have been on the show previously in separate episodes and are now working together on a new project that examines how nonviolent activists around the world can and have utilized dilemma actions and humor to be more effective in both the short term and the long term. Serja is the winner of the McCourtney Institute for Democracy's Brown Democracy Medal, and Sophia is a professor of international affairs and comparative literature here at Penn State. They recently collaborated on the book Pranksters vs. Autocrats, Why Dilemma Actions Advance Nonviolent Activism. We discuss the book and the underlying framework of Dilemma Actions in this episode, and as you'll hear, they have lots of amazing stories to tell about how Dilemma Actions and a related concept called Laftivism can really help both put a stop to authoritarian regimes and advance democracy in countries that are not necessarily authoritarian, but perhaps experiencing democratic erosion. So we talk about examples from all across the world and right here at home in the U.S. as well. Michael and Candace will be back next week with a look at the Colored Conventions movements and Black organizing before and after the Civil War. This history is fascinating. You won't want to miss that episode next week. But for now, here is my conversation with Serge Popovich and Sophia McLennan. Serge and Sophia, welcome to Democracy Works. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks. Pleasure being with you. So the intersection of your work and the most recent book you've put out has to do all about this concept of dilemma action. And I think that as soon as people hear it, they're going to be able to, it'll click automatically, but the term is perhaps a little abstract. So if you could start there describing what dilemma action is, and I think actually the book starts with a really great example of one from a couple of years ago in Turkey. A dilemma action is a particular type of nonviolent tactic that a group can use that puts your opponent in a lose-lose situation. So they either run the risk of trying to stop what you're doing and they look bad when they do that. Maybe they look like they're overreacting or you put attention to a policy that doesn't make sense or they don't do anything and it shows a weakness and it shows a way for you just will away at their power. So the example you're thinking of is kissing on the subway in Turkey. So if you're, for example, dealing with an administration, a regime that has highly repressive social public policies, a really good thing you can do is break them. So kissing on a subway is a really hard thing for police to stop because they just look mean. And so that's a great story we have in the book from Turkey. Also, I would add that this is something that a lot of groups across the world come organically to. And what we try to figure out in the Prankster's book and throughout the research is what may be the pattern. And is there a way that you can teach people dilemma actions? And of course, uh, from my 20 years of experience working with activist groups, you learn that the tactics are more effective if they're carefully planned. And what we want to prove is that the campaigns are more effective if they have the dilemma component in it. And yes, sometimes this can look like the spark of humor and creativity, 
And yes, coming to the idea that the way you oppose the state media propaganda in Poland in the 80s is not by protesting and shouting or, you know, burning down the building of the state-controlled TV, but rather inviting people to put their TV sets in strollers and stroll around the neighborhood. And you can take a look at this and say, wow, this is genius. And yes, many of these dilemma actions really came as a spark of creativity. But if you take a look at them in a, in a strategic manner, this is exactly what Sophia says. They are designed to put your opponent between the rock and the hard place. If they arrest people strolling TV sets, they look stupid. If they don't, they actually let people not watching the state TV, mocking the state TV and breaking the curfew. So they look weak. So ideal dilemma action starts with understanding the topic that will engage a lot of people, but continues with this soft spot that puts your opponent between the rock and a hard place, whether the opponent is the oppressive government company or just a school bully. Where do dilemma actions fit within bigger movements, bigger campaigns for advancing democracy, or as you've said, pushing back against authoritarian forces or companies or other figures? It seems it's just one component there. There are obviously many things that go into these campaigns. So the important thing to think about when we talk about dilemma actions is it is a tactic. It's like a tool in the toolbox that a movement would have. And one of the things we're studying in the larger project that's sort of coming out of pranksters is exactly what happens and what types of dilemma actions you want to use at particular moments in a campaign. So one of the things we're looking at is, do you want to have a sort of more creative, innovative dilemma action early on that can draw attention to your movement so that you can build sympathy among the public and also do a really good job of showing sort of the weakness or, again, the aggressive nature of what you're targeting. Sergey can tell a nice story that they did in Serbia where they used a petrol barrel with an image of Milosevic to gather attention, right? We can stand here near the petrol barrel and hit it And that kind of thing helps build attention. Those sorts of dilemma actions early on, we're thinking, and again, we're trying to study the implications of this, are really valuable. But that doesn't mean dilemma actions aren't useful throughout a campaign. Just to continue with this point, uh, very often you find small groups like Otpor Resistance Movement was a relatively small group when we did the battle prank, using this artistic and street theater stuff to draw attention and also to create a cool around the movement because one of the elements that movements need, and we know this from literature also experience, is you want to grow numbers. And the best way to grow numbers is to create an image of something cool. And like in case with petrol bottles, Sophia just explained, the reason why we got a lot of members out of this, and we were probably 20 people at the time or 50 people at the time, really small group on the emerging side of the movement is people seeing a group of kids mocking behaved police and putting them in the position that they can't find their nose. So they couldn't arrest uh, downtown shoppers hitting the bottle. They couldn't arrest the organizers. The organizers were too smart for them uh, moving to the nearby cafe. So they arrested the barrel and they got caught on the camera arresting the barrel with the president's face. And of course, they look like idiots. Now, small group of people turning a, a very large pillar of oppression into a punchline normally triggers, oh, who are these guys? You know, it triggers interest. It also triggers one thing 
thing that we find across the use of Dalai actions. This is something a lot of people will do if only they would dare to. And fast forward to the two or three years ago when a group of environmental activists known as Extinction Rebellion came to the idea to interrupt endless and, you know, everybody hates the debate about Brexit in UK after three years of futile discussions in Parliament, come to the Parliament balcony, do protest uh, this robbing and come out with a request that instead of endlessly talking this crappy thing called Brexit, let's talk about the climate emergency. And then, of course, they disrupt and superglued their butts for the window of the parliament. Now, this, of course, paid the attention of the MPs. This was, of course, in a live television. So millions of people have seen it. But the key thing is timing is great. At that point, 75% of the Brits, if you ask them, what do they think about this? This is exactly what they would do. So ingenuity of this is finding a widely held belief or something that connects to a lot of people and designing action around it. So it's not only about thinking about the prank or thinking about a small theater, the really successful dilemma actions, and we found it across the pro-democracy struggles all the way to anti-corporate struggles, human rights struggles, equality struggles, climate change struggle, starts with understanding what is this Brexit thing? What is this thing that will talk to a lot of people? And then once you find this thing, then you treat it the way that puts your opponent between the rock and a hard place. So if British Parliament stops and starts talking about environmental emergency, which they eventually did amazingly, and this was performed by seven people. But the idea is this visibility and participation was gained because they did the first thing strategically. So these are not isolated things. They are very often part of larger campaigns. And sometimes they're exercised as a point of flag. Oh, look at me. I'm teasing the evil president. I'm making the toy protest in Russia. Sometimes these dilemma actions are a big radical thing which come at the end. We identified at least seven or eight general strikes. General strike is a dilemma action because it leaves you with no choice. Yeah, that was actually something I was going to ask about. And is this something that you found that groups are generally receptive to thinking about this type of strategy? It seems like it might also be kind of difficult to figure out where to fit this in. If you've already got this campaign you're doing or this thing you're trying to do, maybe your resources are already limited to start with. How do you go about introducing this to someone if it's not something that they're already doing as part of their nonviolent practice? This is actually the very good question. And uh, very often there are like three different types of groups when it comes to this, that we are studying it. One type of group is typical pranksters. You take a look at the Yes Man, which is a small but very effective anti-corporate organization. Or to go back to 60s and take a look at Yippies, this is no new phenomenon. This is phenomenon which stretches throughout the history. And then you see that this is something that they do as their signature. And we understood that 60 to 70% of these things tend, tend to be replicated. That means that they work. That also means that they inspire other people doing it. And now they're not replicated in the era of social media. They're not only replicated within the movement, they're also replicated around the globe. Now we have the cluster of rubber ducks coming from every single continent that we figured out. We have a cluster of way people are treating potholes from planting trees, planting flowers in the potholes, celebrating the birthdays of the potholes when they're not fixed over the years, all the way to the group in Brazil that stuffed the pothole with water and then with fish 
because the pothole was so big and so mature that it was ready to be turned into the fishing lake. And when you take a look at how these things spread horizontally, you can see how not only this attracts attention, not only this attracts people, but it's also building skills, giving other people idea how to do it. And maybe because it worked in Panama, it will also work in Pennsylvania. To the point you were making about changing the narrative, is like an Overton window or something like that a useful way to think about it where you kind of do it gradually or the realm of what's possible or what's acceptable shifts over time? And do dilemma actions help at all to accelerate that pace of change? At its heart, a dilemma action exposes a situational irony. So situational ironies are when something isn't the way it's supposed to be. So for example, if a regime says its job is to take care of the population, but the regime is in fact repressing the population, that is an intrinsically existing ironic reality. So if your group can expose that, it actually is much faster domino So what we're trying to do is teach people to figure out what is the deeply ironic problem with your opponent that you can use creative irony to show. So again, if you're saying, hey, the police are supposed to protect the people, not kill the people, then you focus on that specific issue and you expose it. And so again, in a case like this, you could protest and you could say, oh, the police, they're overstepping their bounds and be very literal about it. But we are showing that that digging into that ironic way in which you can expose abuses of power is actually far more effective. It changes how people understand things immediately. It says, oh, I want the police to do what they're supposed to do. Or for example, again, a corporation is not supposed to just sell us products and lie to us. So once you can expose that, it's actually one of those shifts cognitively that the mind can't undo. And so it becomes a fairly quick process. We're also looking at how the media covers these things, because at the end of the day, the way the media frames the issue will have so much to do with how the public sees it. So if your group allows the media to frame this as we're a hostile group of rebels, we want to shake things up then the media story is the story of the conflict. So dilemma actions are especially valuable because it turns out that the media likes to cover the dilemma itself and the tactic. And so the story becomes, oh, the people were sitting at a lunch counter. What do we do? Or Rosa Parks decided to sit, wait. Uh, And so it's not about the conflict. It's now about this group and how they're trying to change a policy. So you get a completely different sort of media coverage when the tactic itself allows that issue framing to divert attention from that sense of polarization. And that's a really important part of it. At some point, the work kind of shifts. And I think, Sergio, you and I might have talked about this in our first conversation on the show some years ago. But there's a kind of the closer you get to a policy change to some type of change taking place, I feel like the less public it becomes, you start maybe working with the people in power or you start having kind of different conversations. And so I'm wondering if there's a point in this process of of change where dilemma actions fade away or stop or how they exist as you get closer to the change you actually want to achieve at the outset? 
I actually, actually, when you take a look at this process, you understand that you have two types of negotiations. You negotiate horizontally with your partners, and then there is time when you engage in vertical negotiation. Uh, whatever theory of negotiations you're looking at, it tells you that the more power you bring to the negotiating table, the more likely you are going to get what you want. So starting with dilemma actions, pointing the attention, you know, making somebody aware that they should fix the potholes or something small is a great time to start. And this is how you are buying visibility for negotiations. And then in a mature phase, when you have a, already the table is set, the pieces are moving, we call this engagement stage of the movement, you want to build up on this momentum and then go to negotiations. And then the last round of situation is, it is one thing when you have a street protest that are waning day by day and your opponent then engages in negotiation, it's completely another thing if you have a general strike knocking on their door, because then your negotiation position is completely different and you're more likely to get what you want. So I think that once again, it's a power vehicle, power tool for the movements and uh, it works great in different stages of the movements, whether this is closer to the end or this is closer to the beginning. And then I will let Sofia maybe taking a look more at this effectiveness thing, which we are very passionate uh, trying to look at. And it's not only about this is cool and this is funny and this works, these individual tactics, but what we try to figure out, if you put them in a historic context of nonviolent campaigns that have been successful or partly successful through history, is it effective? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that we're fascinated by is how exactly do you motivate people to continue to fight for a cause? How does that work over time? And so what we measured, for example, wasn't just did this lead to regime change or to something very direct cause effect, the dilemma action happens, someone steps down, or the dilemma action happens and then suddenly... Volkswagen issues an apology. What we wanted to measure was of success. Did this build your movement? Did it help continue the movement? Were you able to frame the media coverage? Was your action replicated? Meaning it was such a neat thing that other people wanted to do something similar. So in Pranksters, we took nine different success metrics and actually, in our next version of this, we're measuring far more. And so what we want to suggest to people is that you don't only look at whether you toppled a regime as a sign of success. Sometimes you need to recognize that success is the fact that you kept your movement going and you didn't give up. It's like when you take a look at what happens with movements that achieve large numbers, get faced with the oppression, and then part of them go violent, which is something we unfortunately may be witnessing in Burma in the next few months, these movements are doomed. And I mean, history teaches us, theory teaches us. So actually, if you find a way to bridge this large confrontation and you're longer through the stage of oppression until you regroup and capture international attention and find other ways to challenge your opponent, that's a quality for itself. So once again, as Sofia says, it's not only about whether this person resigned or whether this company, you should apologize. We are looking into far broader context on, you know, dilemma actions being used as sometimes as a band-aid for the movements. You bringing up Burma, I've been thinking a lot about that as I've been looking through your work. I know one of the things you measure in your survey of these actions and these movements is the risk of 
severe punishment. And I, I was going to ask, is there ever a point where it's too dangerous to pursue this course of action? But I think you were just sort of speaking to that about how you have to kind of adapt along the way as the situation changes. And from what you've studied and what we can look to in history, does the regime keep up with the changes that the movement is making? And does it get to the point where they just flame out or they are like, okay, we're just going to let these people go? Or how does that brinksmanship keep up as these situations continue to evolve? I think there are three types of responses that are generally opponents are taking off. One is the most stupid, uh, take bite and escalate. So this is exactly what the dilemma action authors want. They want you to take bite and escalate. They want you to ban protest of toys. They want you to ban the snowman. Pro they want you to look, they want to bring this, as Sophia says, this irony into absurd zone. So now we are so afraid of red and white flag in Belarus that we are sending uniformed police during Christmas time to take red and white decorations from the trees. I mean, how did that this portray the, the regime? Uh, it's not only weak, it's not only stupid, but it's on a level of paranoia that these people need experts' help. If you're afraid of uh, Christmas decorations, that shows very much the bad place in which you are. So sometimes your opponent escalates. Sometimes your opponent ignores the show, and this is exactly where it becomes tricky, how ignoring it really comes with a price. Sometimes it's easy to follow if you have uh, these restrictions, which are uh, touchable, like freedom of assembly. You can't assemble more than five people, and then you have six people feeding pigeons in Belarus. And then the government needs to decide what to do with these six people. Because six people making them look incapable of implementing their ban on five people, but then six people feeding pigeons being arrested makes them look stupid. So you sometimes you want to see what's the price of ignoring it. Sometimes it's very measurable. Montgomery bus boycott, death counter occupations, salt march. When it comes with economic price for your opponent, it's easy to say, of course, if people continue boycotting product and you do nothing about that, then your crony will lose money. So there is something tangible you can deal with. And uh, in many cases, they try to accommodate. In some cases, they even try to do the counteractions. And that's recently very popular in uh, places like Serbia, Hungary, Russia. They try to make the dilemma actions of their own. They try to make their opponent of their own. But what we figured out throughout the research, we couldn't find uh, one of the examples. It's like when David teases Goliath, it looks funny. When Goliath teases David. It looks like bullying. <laughs> I mean, this is just the nature of the beast. I can't explain it scientifically, but when state use the resources to portray a single individual small group of people like this or that, it always looks like bullying. And by the way, it's always giving them publicity that they actually want. So the one thing with this is uh, the more clearly designed, the more they are effective, whether your opponent takes the bite and escalates or they ignore it. The trick is to ask yourself a question, is there a price in ignoring it? I think this is probably the largest thing. And a lot of these actions go flat. And some of them go flat on a larger scale. Umbrella revolution in Hong Kong was a process that involved millions of people, came out with complete blockage of the town, and then came out with a complete support of the business and majority of the Hong Kong population. And then mainland China decided to ignore it and sit on their back 
and wait for numbers for dwindle. Because it's mainland China, they can survive two or three weeks of economic blockade of Hong Kong. They know the opposition can survive. They know the businesses will start crawling in two or three weeks. They know the numbers will dwindle because people will need to go somewhere instead of sitting on a city square. And uh, when you're strategically planning, especially for something that massive, demanding and high in resources, you always need to ask yourself a question, what if my opponent ignores it? And then this is rarely asked questions, uh, but when you're planning these big things, you always accept your opponent to be really surprised or do something really big. And you somehow don't calculate the let's ignore it version on them. Let's ignore it till, the, till it falls apart. So let me, as we bring things to a close here, we talked about so many examples from throughout history, both recent and farther back than that. Let me kind of end with a, something more forward-looking or, or a bit of a hypothetical, perhaps, if I can. One of the things that we're seeing right now in the U.S., and we've talked about a lot on the show, is efforts to restrict voting rights, voting access in, in states across the country, perhaps most famously, at least as of right now, in Georgia, where the legislature says you can't bring water or food to people who are waiting in line. You can't take a picture of your ballot. So for people there, or just people generally concerned about these issues, how might you think about utilizing dilemma actions to push back against or challenge some of these types of restrictions? Well, we have a really perfect example, right? Because at the signing of the bill, when the governor of Georgia was signing the bill, you had a representative who showed up and said, I would like to see the signing of the bill. I've been elected by the people of Georgia. I have a right to be here. Simply knock on the door, see if you'll get let in. And because this person is a person of color, maybe she gets arrested. It's an unbelievable, it's a, again, you know, Serge and I, when we saw this, I think we were probably, sharing tweets at three in the morning when the story was breaking, we thought, wow, you know, did they know this would be a dilemma action? Did they know that the knocking would lead to an arrest and would get the kind of media coverage? Those are some of the questions we're interested in, whether people sort of create accidental dilemma actions or deliberate ones. But there's no question that the abuse of voting rights is ripe for a range of dilemma actions. And we've looked at a number of things for accountability, accountability struggles in the United States. One of our favorite ones is looking at the group Indivisible that like to have town hall meetings where their representatives should have shown up but didn't. So they would just bring an empty suit. Or in one case, one of my favorites, they put a chicken on a podium and had a meeting. <laughs> so there's a very, very interesting way that you can use dilemma actions for things like accountability and advancing democracy. One more thing which is really interesting is when you take a look at specifically voting bills, expect the officials to become, of course, the targets of the dilemma action, as Sophia says. But in the larger trend of recent successful protests in the U.S., expect businesses to be the target. If you take a look at the Parkland, Florida shooting and how shifting the attention of protesters pro-gun control from politicians who are in the pocket of NRA into the businesses where high school students do have power. So it's like they don't have power to elect the governor, but they have power to buy and exporting goods or Walmart. So if they threaten Walmart with large boycott, 
Then the Walmart will do the background checks on the counters and they will claim the victory. And mobilizing hundreds of thousands of people to call for boycott of Walmart is a dilemma for Walmart. They don't want to lose this money. And, and, you know, the businesses are very uh, realistic uh, opponents or targets. If they will lose more money by not granting you what you want, they will grant grant you what you want. <laughs> there is no ideology, only a calculator in their behavior. So if they think that they will sell more weapons, then you can boycott them, they will continue selling weapons. But then, you know, when 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 this thing goes up, and I think this is what we will be seeing in Georgia, we'll see more and more orientation towards the businesses who are funding politicians. There is a widely held belief that it is in best interest of state or federal government or even local government for more people to participate. And once again, it's a situational irony because these are the representatives who are telling to the people, come and vote more, come and vote more. This is your constitutional obligation. My six-year-old son would come on a voting day from school and he had a lesson on how important this thing is. He probably know more American presidents at the, at the age of six that I know in my, in my students' days. But, you know, it's like that they keep you telling you go vote and immediately somebody says, oh, you can't vote on that day or you can't vote after the church on Sunday or you can't vote if you're standing in the line, nobody can bring you war. And this is a very, very, it's a one-on-one target for a dilemma action, like theoretically, historically, practically, however. So expect more of this as more of this loss goes on and expect that the activists will expand battlefields mostly to businesses. We will leave it there for today. We'll certainly link to Pranksters versus Autocrats and uh, to both of you on Twitter so we can continue to follow as you keep us informed on these dilemma actions that are happening constantly and you're sharing back and forth at 3 a.m. and and all these things as news is breaking. Thank you both so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you, Jenna. Pleasure being on the show. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Our editors are Mark Stitzer, Jen Bortz, and Chris Kugler. And additional support comes from WPSU's Andy Grant, Emily Reddy, Chris Allen, and Craig Johnson. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please consider leaving us a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.